Well, there's some decisions in life that are easy to make. What time should I wake up? What should I eat for breakfast? And what shoes should I put on? And those decisions are easy because the effect they have on our life is pretty minimal. There's not really many consequences if I put the wrong pair of shoes on today. Uh, and there, but then there's other decisions that are harder to make. Katie and I just went through uh, the car buying process, and so we spent a month searching for cars because we didn't want to buy a bad car that had a bunch of things wrong with it. We want to find the right car and not have a you know take it to the mechanic in the first week because we're going to spend a good amount of money on it. But then when we're buying our house, that was an even bigger decision because instead of several thousand dollars, now it's over a hundred thousand dollars with the loan you're going to be paying off for thirty years. So you really don't want to have the wrong house, and so you take a while to make that decision. And when people are dating and they start thinking about getting engaged, uh, that's a huge decision too because it's like, okay, this person, if I get engaged to them and then we get married, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with them. That could be you know, 50, 60, 70 years. It's going to affect the rest of your life. So it's a huge decision and a lot of time and thought and prayer and talking with other people needs to go into it. And so um, for big decisions that have a huge effect on our life, we take time before making that decision and we consider them carefully. And today we're starting a new series called Living the Good News Together. And the name of our church is Good News Church. Uh, and the good, it's the good news about Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He's done that affects everything we do. It defines who we are. It's the center of what we're all about. And this news is something that changes everything. And when you hear news that changes everything, you need to live in light of that news. This, oh, that's the new situation. I've heard, you know, I've heard about it now. The news has told me. And that's how the situation has changed. And now I need to live in light of how things have changed because of that event. And this series is all about how we can live in light of the good news about Jesus together. And so just take a moment to flip um, to the back of your songbook. Um, it's the very uh, last page of it. And I'm just going to, in that, in there, we'll be able to see what we're going to be covering um, throughout this series. And so at the top, you can see um, we have our mission. And in the middle, there's five things. Um, believing the gospel, living as family, loving as servants, going as messengers, and relying on the Spirit. Those are what we call our community practices. And the very last thing is our vision, or we want, that's where God's taking us. We want to show and tell the good news to every man, woman, and child. And so over these seven weeks, we're going to be covering those things. Tonight we're covering that first thing, mission, surrendering all of life to Jesus, inviting others to do the same. The next five weeks we'll cover that middle part, um, those five community practices. And then lastly we'll cover um, our vision. So that gives you a little sense of where we're going in this series. And if you're kind of like, oh, you know, I'm visiting, or like, I'm not sure this is my church home, so do I really want to sit here and spend all this time listening you know, to what this church is all about? Um, but let me assure you that each of these is going to come out of a passage in Scripture, so it'll be relevant to your life, even if, um, you're, not sh- if you're visiting or not sure if this is your church home. So in the first passage, we read Luke 14. Um, Jesus told his potential followers that they must count the cost before following him. He says that it's going to require everything of you, and so you need to count the cost. I'm asking you to give me everything, so count the cost. Are you willing to give up everything to follow me? Our commitment to him, he says, must go deeper than our commitment to our families and even to ourselves. He wants people to make sure they know what it means to follow. It means he's number one in their lives. And then our second scripture reading from Luke 9 is where we're going to focus today. And this conversation clearly uh, captures what Jesus asked of people. He asked us to make a big decision that have a huge effect on our life. Kind of like getting married, you know, buying a big house or, or buying a car. Like it's a decision that he says you need to think about this and take it seriously and know what it means when you make this decision. And the big question that Luke 9 is going to answer for us is, 
Um, what is the right response to the good news about Jesus? What is the right response to the good news about Jesus? That's the big question our passage answers. What is the right response to the good news about Jesus? We're going to cover Luke 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 in two parts. And the first part is going to tell us what the good news about Jesus is. And the second part answers our big question, telling us what the right response to that good news is. And so let's begin with the good news about Jesus in Luke chapter 9, um, verses 18 through 22. And we'll start by rereading verses 18 through 20 in Luke chapter 9. It says, Now it happened... That as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And this scene plays out right after Jesus has performed a huge miracle. And if you've been around the church scene at all, you've probably heard of him feeding the 5,000 people. And actually there's over 5,000 people. But he feeds all these people with just... Five loaves of bread and two fish. And so that has just happened. And now Jesus is off alone. Uh, well, not quite alone. He's praying alone, but his disciples are there with them. Um, and then he asks them this question. And so they're still stunned from that experience of like, we just saw this guy take, you know, this kid's lunch, um, five loaves and two fish, and he fed all these people with it. And they're just you know, still stunned by that. And he says now that he's not surrounded by this crowd, it's just his closest followers, his closest disciples, um, he wants to ask them this question. And the word disciple means learner. Um, and usually when we think about learning, we think about sitting in a classroom, getting knowledge. But it's much different than how they learned um, in Jesus' day and in, in Middle Eastern contexts. Um, to learn in those days, you would follow someone um, to imitate what they teach and what they do. It wasn't about just getting knowledge and then hoping they go out and do it. It was following somebody. It was almost like an apprenticeship. Like you're following them, you're learning their lifestyle, learning their teaching. And so he's alone with his closest disciples, and Jesus asks them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? And surely Jesus has you know, heard what the crowds are saying, but he wants to promote reflection. And, and so they answer, well, John the Baptist, but others are saying Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And upon hearing their report of the crowd's answers, he makes it personal. He says, but who do you say that I am? Not just them, but who do you say that I am? And one of the disciples named Peter acts as the spokesman when he answers, the Christ of God. But what does this answer mean, the Christ of God? And the word Christ, sometimes we think of it as like, oh, it's kind of like Jesus' last name. He's Jesus Christ. I'm Mitchell Kirkmeyer, and he's Jesus Christ. But no, Christ is actually uh, like, it was, his, it was a title. Um, and the word Christ means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew um, portion of the scriptures, um, kings were anointed with olive oil in their heads to symbolize God's presence was with them um, to rule the nation. So they were anointed with oil. They were an anointed one. Um, Christ means anointed one. And Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ of God recognizes that Jesus is the one that God has anointed with his presence to rule as king. And God promised that he would send a king to bring salvation to his people. And this king would save them from their enemies and save them from their sins. He was going to be bringing salvation. God promised this king would come. And we were hearing about that um, in our uh, series right leading up to Christmas about how the beginning of Luke talked all about that. And Jesus' disciples, they've been following him, they've been hearing his teaching, they've been seeing miracles and what he does for a while, not, for a while now. And here Jesus wants to see, well, what have they concluded about who I am? And right on the heels of this great miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus' identity is starting to become clear to them and they're ready to answer. So 
Peter says, well, you're the promised king sent by God to bring salvation. All of our scriptures talked about you, and now here you are, you're here. And so imagine, you know, that excitement at that moment, like the one we've been waiting for for centuries and centuries. He's finally here, and I'm standing in front of him, and I'm following him. It would have been an exciting thing. And Jesus' question to his disciples is a question each of us must answer. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And today there's many different views about who Jesus is, but probably um, one of the most popular ones, um, many people would quickly agree, well, yeah, Jesus was a good person, he had good things to say, but that isn't the right answer. There's only one right answer to who is Jesus. And so he, sure, he was a good person, he had good things to say, but that's not the answer that captures who he was and is. And Muslims and others agree that he was a great prophet, but that's not the right answer either. There's only one right answer. He's the Christ of God. He's the king whom God has sent to bring salvation. But then if we answer that he is a king, we must also know what kind of king he is, because the error we can easily make is to find Jesus the kind of king we want him to be, instead of the kind of king that he actually is. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day expected the Christ of God to win this big political victory against the Roman Empire that had conquered them. And so they're all thinking like, please send the Christ so that he can take care of these Romans and get them out of our land. We want our land back. And so the disciples, when they say, oh, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Christ of God. Their expectation is that he's going to win this glorious victory over the Romans and they're going to be at his side when he does so. And so imagine, you know, Peter's like, the Christ of God, and then Jesus is like, yeah, I am that, and it's like, you know, we're going to be like, you know, your warriors alongside you, and we're going to take out the Romans, and it's going to be awesome, maybe they think we're going to have positions of honor, and actually later they ask about that, like, hey Jesus, we'd like to sit at your side and rule, and he's like, uh, that's not quite how things are going to work out, guys, but Jesus knows that they have these expectations, and so verse 21 tells us, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He doesn't want them spreading the news that he is the Christ. They must keep his identity concealed because they don't fully understand the kind of king he is and anyone else who hears that he is the Christ is going to have the same wrong assumptions that his disciples are having right now. And so, how many of you have played Pictionary, the game Pictionary, or at least heard of it, know the concept, see heads nodding? So you have this one person looks at a slip of paper with a word on it, and then they have like a whiteboard, and they start drawing the picture on the whiteboard. And then you have a team who's guessing what they're drawing. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you have to complete the whole drawing, but sometimes you can guess what someone is drawing before they've finished drawing the picture. And so in this scenario, it's kind of like Jesus is the person drawing, and the disciples are the people guessing. And he's been drawing this picture of who he is, but it isn't finished yet. But they've seen enough of it. They're like, ooh, it's the Christ of God. You know, they've got the answer right. And then he's like, yes, that's true. Um, but there's more of the picture. Like, you've gotten enough that you are kind of seeing, like, I know what's going on here. I know what he's drawing. But he's like, no, wait. I need to fill in the whole picture before you go and start telling other people about me. Because you have this one part right, but you're going to go off and fill in the details for yourself for what you expect me to be. And so he's like, I want you to wait for a while for me to teach you and show you the kind of king that I am. And he begins telling them what kind of king he is in verse 22. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We learn that Christ is a title for Jesus, and Son of Man is also a title. It's actually Jesus' favorite one that he applies to himself. And in the Old Testament, the Son of Man was a person 
who would come and establish an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would never end. But Jesus now says that he, as the Son of Man, must suffer, be rejected by Israel's leaders, be killed, and then on the third day be resurrected from the dead. And so how will Jesus rule as king if he is dead? How is he going to bring salvation if he is dead? How will he set up an everlasting kingdom? Jesus isn't marching to victory, but he's marching to his death, he says. God sent him to Israel to be their king who would bring salvation. But instead, Jesus says, the leaders of the nation, the leaders of Israel that he's coming to are going to reject him and kill him. What will become clear to Jesus' disciples is that he is a king who saves people, but he's a king who saves people by dying in their place. The salvation he brings is different than they expected. His aim is to save us from our spiritual enemies that hold us in bondage to sin, Satan, and death. And in order to do that, he must suffer and die. Our refusal to follow God's ways comes at a cost, and Jesus paid that cost. He paid the price. He died the death our sins deserve so that we could be freed from the bondage and the punishment and the penalty for them. Jesus conquered humanity's spiritual enemies, but he didn't stay dead because he says often the disciples when he tells them, like, I'm going to suffer and die, and they're like, what? No, that's not going to happen. They always, they miss that every time he else said, and three days later be raised from the dead. You think they kind of focus on that part, like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> this dying stuff, we're all going to do that, but what are you talking about getting raised from the dead? It seems like they kind of always miss that until it finally actually happens. So Jesus, he does die, but he doesn't stay dead. He's raised the dead to life three days later, and now presently he's ruling as king of heaven and earth. Jesus wouldn't be the king that the disciples expected, but he would be a far better one who would bring salvation at a far deeper level than they were imagining. And the big question this passage answers is, what is the right response to the good news about Jesus? And in these verses, we are learning what the good news about Jesus is. The good news about Jesus is that he's a king sent by God to save us. That's what the good news is, that Jesus is a king sent by God to save us. He delivers us from the clutches of sin, Satan, and death by giving his own life. And now he's alive to reign and to rule forever. You know, sometimes we might be like, oh man, we had a, you know, we had a great president, but eventually that president's term is going to end, or, and if their term was never ending, eventually they would die. And it's like with Jesus, it's like, wow, it's great that he's a, a good king now, but eventually he's going to die and somebody else is going to take over. But with Jesus, he is a good king. He's the best king we could have, and he's never going to die. He's always going to have his kingdom and his reign. And this is the good news of Christianity that has been announced all over the world for 2,000 years. The good news that Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And now Jesus' question comes to each of us. Who do you say that I am? And each of us must answer that question. There's only one right answer for it. And so with that question in our minds, as well as the good news that Jesus is a king who died to save us and he's alive today, let's turn now to the second part of our passage, which gives us the right response to this good news. So let's reread verses 23 through 27 in Luke chapter 9. And he said to all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Once the disciples have answered the question about 
who Jesus is, and he's filled in their picture with some details. Jesus now tells them what this means for them. The good news is that he's the king God has sent to bring salvation. And so how should they respond to the good news about who Jesus is? How should they respond to what he's going to do on their behalf? How he's going to suffer and be rejected and die but be raised again? How should they respond to this king who will save them? And the big question this passage answers is, what is the right response to the good news about Jesus? And in these verses we just read, he states the answer in several interconnecting and, and overlapping ways. But the right response to the good news about Jesus can be summed up like this. We surrender all of life to Jesus. What is the right response to the good news about Jesus? We surrender all of life to Jesus. And that's the answer to our big question. It's kind of like the headline answer. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he asks his disciples to make the same commitment that God has always asked of his people. In just some ways, the Old Testament says it. God calls us to love him with all our heart, heart, soul, and strength. He calls us to fear and reverence him above all else. He calls us to worship him alone and put no other gods before him, to humble ourselves and bow down before him, and to place our faith and trust in him. These are all getting at the same truths. And as a church, we summarize all of these as surrendering all of life to Jesus. That's our mission statement, and that's what everything we do is about. And we all put something first in our lives. We all have something we put at the top of our priority list. And Jesus calls us to put him first and to put him at the top of our priority list. And that's why our mission is to surrender all of life to Jesus because it captures what God was always calling his people to and what Jesus was always, always calling his disciples to. The big question this passage answers is, what is the right response to good news about Jesus? And the answer is, we surrender all of life to Jesus. And then he gives us five ways that we surrender all of life to him. And so first, we surrender all of life to Jesus by getting off the throne. We surrender all of life to Jesus by getting off the throne. Jesus says that if anyone will come after him, meaning if anyone wants to be called his disciple or to be called a Christian, they must first deny themselves. That's what he says. This is step one. If you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. And, and deny yourself means to deny ourselves the right to be king over our own lives. It's to say, you know what? You're not going to run the show anymore. Someone else is going to run the show. I'm, I'm going to deny my rights to run my life, and, get, and I'm going to get off the throne. And we're going to recognize Jesus as the king on the throne. So we start saying, Jesus, you call the shots. You set the agenda. You're in control. And we start living for his kingdom instead of our own kingdom of self. We put him first. Second, we surrender all of life to Jesus by obeying God no matter what. We surrender all of life to Jesus by obeying God no matter what. Obeying God no matter what is how we surrender all of life to Jesus. Jesus says that if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves. And then he says, and take up their cross daily. Jesus is heading to his death on a cross, which is a Roman uh, instrument for executing people. Um, some people have said, this, you know, taking up your cross daily, if we were to write it today, we would say, take up your electric chair daily. And he's basically the same thing. Like, he's going to get on this thing to execute him, and he's saying, now you need to take up one of those daily as well. And anyone who wants to be his disciple needs to take up their cross. Jesus went to his death, and he calls us to do the same. Um, but Jesus accepted his death willingly because he was obeying God's will to provide uh, salvation for us. And he's not just saying, like, okay, we all have to go 
um, overseas and, and somehow be killed for our faith. That's not what, he, what he's saying. It's more of a, a daily practice, a spiritual practice that we need to do. Um, when we take up our cross, it means the person who, uh, who puts um, themselves on the throne is gone. Because anybody you saw carrying a cross, you knew that person is gone. And so the old me that put themselves on the throne, they're gone. They're taking up their cross and they're dying every day. They're walking their death every day. We are dying to ourselves, to our agenda, to our plan for our life, and we submit it to God. We submit it to God's will no matter what. And, and so when that change takes place, Jesus is on the throne now, and we obey God no matter what, just like Jesus did. So to review, first we surrender all of life to Jesus by getting off the throne. Second, we surrender all of life to Jesus by obeying God no matter what. And third, we surrender all of life to Jesus by doing and saying what he would do and say. We surrender all of life to Jesus by doing and saying what he would do and say. Jesus says, if anyone will come after him, they must deny themselves take up their cross, and follow him. And this is a call to follow Jesus' example and to follow Jesus' teaching, which means we do and say what he would do and say, but we're not able to do and say what Jesus would do and say unless we do those first two, unless we're willing to deny ourselves, unless we're willing to get off the throne, and unless we're willing to obey God no matter what, because that's what Jesus did. He said, I don't have the, a right to run my own life, even though he came as the Son of God and as a king, he said, I follow God the Father's orders. What he does, or what he says, is what I do. And said he, So he got off the throne of his own life, and he obeyed God no matter what. And so, unless we're willing to do that, we're unable to follow Jesus' example in teaching. And so we surrender all of life to Jesus by doing and saying what he would do and say. And fourth, we surrender all of life to Jesus by handing our life over to him. We surrender all of life to Jesus by handing our life over to him. We hand our life over to him. After Jesus says, when anyone wants to come after him, he needs to take up their cross, or first deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him. He gives the reason why in verse 24. Why would anybody do this crazy thing that Jesus is saying to do? In verse 24, he gives us the reason. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus sums up the previous three answers like this. He says, lose your life for my sake. Um, we hand it over to him. We give them, him the keys to drive and to take us where he wants to take us. He says the benefit is that it's only when we do that will we truly save our life. If we try to save our own life by holding on to it and controlling it and doing what we want with it, we'll lose it, we'll forfeit it, we'll destroy it. And so the benefit of surrendering all of life to Jesus is that you will save your life. And we'll come back to that benefit in the minute. So the fourth thing is that we surrender all of life to Jesus by handing our life over to him. And fifth and lastly, we surrender all of life to Jesus by staying loyal no matter what. We surrender all of life to Jesus by staying loyal no matter what. A question we might ask is, how does me trying to save my life cause me to lose it, and then losing my life for Jesus save it? How does, how does that work? Um, well, Jesus says in verse 26, um, he begins it 
uh, with for, um, or another way to say it is because. He says, because whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So have you ever been you know, in a public setting with someone who did something embarrassing and you're like, oh my gosh, I just can't. I just do not want to be seen with this person. Please let no one see my face. You're kind of like covering yourself with your hood or something or ducking behind you know, the clothes rack. And you're like, please, nobody let me see me with that person. I just don't want to be associated with them. And what Jesus is talking about is people doing that sort of thing with him, of kind of being embarrassed of him and, and not wanting to associate with him. He's talking about people who are willing to associate with him as long as nobody knows about it, or who, who are loyal um, when it doesn't cost something. Um, if people start criticizing Jesus, he's talking about people who reject him and say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not really into that. I'm not, you know, you know, some people are kind of crazy Christians. I'm not that crazy into it. You know, I'm not that dedicated. And Jesus says that if we reject him now, he's going to reject us later. And if we're not loyal to him now, he's not going to be loyal to us later. Being loyal to him means our main concern is not what others think of us, but what Jesus thinks of us and what he wants us to do. What Jesus points to in this verse um, is his return. In his first coming, you know, when he was born, um, we celebrate that at Christmas when he has life and he has death, and then he was raised to life. That was his first coming. Um, he came humble to provide salvation by dying in our place. But in his second coming, when he comes in the future, he's going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, everyone who surrendered their life to him will be saved. But everyone who tried to save their own life and rejected him and said, you know, I'm not going to make you my king. I want to live life my own way. Um, I'm going to hold on to my life and not give it over to you. Those people he will judge, and they will receive what is due for their sins, eternal death, condemnation, and separation from God. And the truth is we're naturally bent toward self-concern and self-interest. We're naturally bent toward wanting to save our lives. We want to make our lives better. We want happiness. We want to be safe and secure. We want to have comfort and peace. We want love and hope. We want what is best for ourselves. And I mean, those are deep longings that are planted within us. And they're not bad longings. It's just that we often try to find them in a different place. Um, and so those longings that are true and that we need to satisfy, Jesus says here that if you really want to do what is best for yourself, if you truly have self-interest and self-concern, you will stop putting yourself first. The best thing you can do for yourself is to surrender all of life to Him. And then you will save your life. All this effort you're doing to save your life and meet these deep longings. He says, if you just give it to me, then you'll have everything you wanted. We'll benefit from His life, death, and resurrection. And then when He comes in glory to judge, we won't be filled with fear because we know He's going to receive us and commend us out of His love for us. And this is why our mission isn't only about us, but it's also about others. Our mission as a church is to surrender all of, all of life to Jesus and to invite others to do the same. That's part of our mission, for one, because Jesus commands us to do it, and second, because it's the most loving act we can do for others. Because everyone is on a spiritual quest looking for answers, for, and they're looking for something that will quench their thirst for meaning and hope and joy and peace and security. And the Bible tells us that those deepest longings are only satisfied in Jesus. And so out of obedience and out of love, we make it our mission to invite others to surrender all of life to Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks when we cover our community practice of going as messengers. But let's consider how all this applies to our life. There's a, a big truth we need to know, and it's this. 
Know that Jesus is the best one to be in control of your life. Know that Jesus is the best one to be in control of your life. He's the best one to call the shots. He's the best one to set the agenda. He's the best one to be in the driver's seat. If Jesus' life is in your hands, it's in much better care than if it is in your hands. And the greatest joy, peace, freedom, hope, power, rest, comfort, and satisfaction are all found in Jesus. And we find it only when we stop gripping our life with white knuckles and we release it to Him. We surrender it to Him and give it over. He knows what is best for us. But it's very hard for us to give over the keys of our life to someone else. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to call the shots. We want to set the agenda. We want to be in control. We want to be on the throne. We want, don't want anybody else being king over us, telling us what to do. And the truth is that our sinfulness, in our sinfulness and pride, we just hate to be told what to do. We hate to be told no. We hate people to tell us you need to do this, you need to not do this. And Jesus it will direct our life if we give it to him. And ever since sin entered the world, the gravitational pull in our lives is toward ourselves. We don't want someone else to be in control of us. We don't believe that someone else could take better care of us than we can take care of us. And so giving over control to someone else would mean that we need to trust that other person more than we trust ourselves. We need to say, you know what? You can do a better job with my life than I can do with it, so I'm going to trust it over to your care. And consider, consider when we fly on an airplane, you're placing your life in the hands of someone else. When you get on an airplane, they're piloting it. You're not doing anything to keep that up in the air. You're just sitting there and hoping, you know, please, Lord, get me to my destination. Don't let them fall asleep. Don't let the engine blow up. I think I do a little routine every time. I'm not, like, shaking when I go to an airplane, but I'm always like, they know what they're doing. All these other people... People have been flying all day. They haven't crashed. You know, it's kind of like that thing. Um, but we have to place our life in someone else's hands. We're trusting the pilot to keep us safe and to get us to our destination. And we have no idea how to fly a plane. And so we have to trust the pilot because we have no idea. We can't go take over and be like, well, get out of the way. Let me do this thing. We just have to let them do it um, because they know what they're doing and we don't. We have no choice but to trust them if we want to fly. And when it comes to Jesus, we need to recognize that we have no idea what we're doing when it comes to running our lives. And we weren't supposed to run our lives on our own. We weren't supposed to have all the answers. We were supposed to be going to God for all of that. And if we have no choice but to trust him, if we want our deepest longing satisfied, and we, if we want to find true, eternal, spiritual life, we must place our life in his hands if, and trust him if we want those things. And there's two big reasons we can trust him. First, we can trust him because he created us. Everything that exists was created by him and for him. And if you want you know, the ins and outs of a car, how it works best, you know, what to, how to operate it correctly, how to maintain it correctly so it lasts a really long time, you're going to want to ask the person who built it. And in the same way, Jesus is the one who built us and created us. He knows how we were made. He knows how to keep us whole and healthy and running properly. He knows what is best for us. And so we can trust Jesus because he created us. And second, we can trust Jesus because he gave his life for us. Think about friends or family that you trust the most. You might say, well, I trust them because they would do anything for me. And so I, I give them my trust. Or often when people make huge sacrifices for friends, or you hear of like a big heroic deed that a soldier did or something, <coughs> they might say, uh, well, I did those things because I know the other person would do the same thing for me, so why wouldn't I risk my life or lay my life down for them? 
And with Jesus, he's already given his life for us. He's already died for us. He's proven his love for us by dying for our sins. So who better to trust to be in control of our life than the one who's already done everything for us and has laid down his life for us and was willing to give his life over. So why wouldn't we trust him to give our life um, to him? We can trust Jesus because he gave his life. <coughs> and so this week, you can think about this question. What areas of your life do you have marked as off-limits to Jesus? What areas of your life do you have marked as off-limits to Jesus? Do you have areas marked as, you know, like, restricted? Like, oh, sorry, Jesus, like, you don't have clearance to this room. Uh, this, is, this one's all for me. Like, that's kind of a restricted area. Or do you have areas marked, you know, I have this marked as mine, uh, instead of having it marked as surrendered. What areas of your life do you have marked as off-limits to Jesus? And confess those to God and surrender control over to Jesus and trust him and say, you've laid down your life for me, you've created me, Uh, there's no reason I shouldn't trust you with this. The big question this passage answers is, what is the right response to the good news about Jesus? The right response is we surrender all of life to Jesus. How? (coughs) First, by getting off the throne. Second, by obeying God no matter what. Third, by doing and saying what Jesus would do and say. Fourth, by handing our life over to him. And fifth, by staying loyal no matter what. Jesus tells us that when we consider following him, we need to count the cost. It's a big life choice. When someone is getting married, they need to know what that commitment means. What does it mean to stand before a pastor in front of a bunch of people and make these vows to another person? Their life is going to be forever changed. They're going to be connected to another person until they die or the other person dies. It's a whole life commitment. And they can no longer live the same as when they are single. Now they have to think of another person's needs, another person's concerns, another person's wants, and they have to devote time to them and energy and make sacrifices for that other person. And when we surrender all of life to Jesus, it's like we're getting married. And in fact, the Bible tells us that it is a marriage. Jesus um, comes as a husband to his bride, the church. We're no longer living as a single person, setting our own agenda or only considering what we want to do. We are committed to Jesus from this day forward, and life will never be the same. But like with any marriage, we're not going to be perfect at it. Keeping that commitment is a daily task. It's not just, you know, today I did it, and now, boom, now we're done, and the, you know, the rest of my life I'm perfect. No, it's a, it's a continually growing and learning um, how to keep that commitment more fully. And when Katie and I first got married, six years ago, she had a conversation with me in those first couple months. She said, you know what, you're, you're willing to break commitments with me, but not with other people. You're willing to keep your plans with other people, but alter plans with me. You know, we plan this evening, and you're willing to say, like, oh, i got to do this other thing. But if you made a commitment to somebody else, oh, you're going to hold to that. And she had to call me out on that, and rightly so, and say, I need to be made a priority, and I want to be made. And I had to, you know, apologize and um, tell her that I'm sorry and try to start doing things differently. But just because I wasn't perfect in that moment doesn't mean we were no longer married. Because we still made that commitment, we were still together, and we were still saying, like, I want to make you priority. And just because, you know, for a week or a month or whatever, a day, she had to say, like, you're not making me a priority, that didn't mean, okay, now we're not married anymore. We were still committed to each other, and I was still committed to her. And similarly, when we commit to Jesus, we're going to stumble and fail to make him a priority. But we're committing ourselves to increasingly surrender more of life to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. We're learning to surrender all of life to Jesus. We're following him and learning more and more along the way. And there's going to be moments 
where Jesus is going to have to tell us, hey, you're putting others before me, and you're putting other things before me, and you need to make me a priority in your life, and we're going to have to apologize and repent and change things. And if he expected us to be perfect, uh, there would have been no reason for him to go to the cross and die for our sins, for all our imperfections and all of our failings. And so anytime that we fail in that relationship, we go to Jesus and say, I'm sorry, I know you paid the price for me to be forgiven for this. And lastly, the Bible clearly tells us that we can't do this on, the, on our own. When, we, when you commit to Jesus, you're committing also to his church, his bride. As a church, we're called to help one another surrender all of life to, Jew, to, to Jesus. And we do that during these worship times. We also do that throughout the weeks. We talk at the beginning of our services about gospel communities and gospel fluency groups. And both these groups are set up for this specific purpose, fulfilling the same mission so that we can walk together in those times when we need to be called back and say, hey, you know, there's this area where you're not really setting that before Jesus. You're not making Jesus a priority. Like, what's going on here? We need help with that. We can't do it alone. And so if you're in a part of those, one of those or um, are not really sure what they are, I'd uh, like you to consider joining one or thinking about it um, because we were never meant to live the Christian life on our own. And this Friday, as I said in the announcements, we're going to be doing a uh, time together where we're reflecting on the past year and thanking God for what he's done and also saying, like, what are we going to do uh, in, this, um, in this following couple months? Um, and so that would be a great time to get involved because God gives us a family of believers um, with whom we live the good news together. That's what this series is all about. We're living the good news together. It is a personal thing. But it's not a private thing. We do it as a group, as a church family, um, together with one another. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this good news about who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he accomplished on our behalf. And we just admit we are totally unworthy um, and undeserving of what you've done. But what an amazing gift you've given us that Jesus would come and lay down his life so that we could be saved from our sins and from our enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And so, Lord, as we move now to the, uh, to the Lord's Supper, given Jesus' own name and title, would you help us to focus on him and what he's done for us? Would you give us thanks and allow us to surrender more of life to Jesus today and this week than we have in the past? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.